You are listening to Mike Seminary and Friends, a Q1 Network production. As we continue our discussion about the role of North Dakota in being, in my opinion, maybe the consummate leader in how to effectively address so many of the crises that we're dealing with, ag, water, fossil fuels, the transition from them to renewables and how that works and the most efficient way to do that. Um, It's an important discussion to have. And I think North Dakota, because in part we have access to policymakers that really want to play a role in solving significant challenges, we, we have the ability to do that. Today I have just the great pleasure of having First of all, a person that served our country when he was in the Marine Corps uh, in Desert Storm, Bosnia, Iraq, and other other places as well. He is an NGSU grad. He has his Ph.D. in natural resource management. I could keep listing his accomplishments because he's just one of those kind of people. I got to know him when he first ran for public service commissioner in the state of North Dakota, He's now the Assistant Vice President for Strategic Partnerships at one of the, maybe the best-kept secrets in the energy industry in our country, the EERC, Energy Environmental Research Center up in Grand Forks. Gives me great pleasure to have as my guest today, Dr. Brian Kalk, the Assistant Vice President for Strategic Partnerships at EERC. Dr. Brian Kalk, it's great to see you. Thanks for taking time to join me. How are you today? Well, great, Mike. Thank you for the kind words. You know, it's uh, it's kind of fun listening to all the background stuff, but I'm just a regular guy, Brian, so please call me Brian. <laughs> well, Brian, I don't know if you remember, but we met in the back of a pickup or in a flatbed truck or something, both in a parade. I was running for something. You were running for something. We, we, we both won. We got that political thing in and out of our... Uh, out of our system to some degree, uh, but that's when we met, and I just have always thought you, you are just a, a gift to the state of North Dakota. I really appreciate how you stay very engaged and working on important matters, and you always do it with a smile on your face because you love people. You're, uh, besides that, you're married to just an incredibly beautiful person, Karen. We like her, too. Love her. So um, I've always been a fan of the Cox, so appreciate you being here. Well, I remember when it was you and Deb, I think we were doing the Mandan Parade, and I don't know what, what office you were running for, whether it was a city commissioner, mayor, I don't remember which one it was then, but yeah, I remember that well. It was about 8,000 degrees that day, and it was hot, and we were all having fun. <laughs> it, it was. It was. Parades are, parades are something special, and you're right. I was running for a city commission back then. Brian, you're at the EERC. You've been there previously. I as I said in the opening, I believe it's one of the best kept secrets in the energy field, particularly when it comes to research. It's really almost like any other national research lab, except it's not a national research lab anymore, doing amazing things and timely uh, things in the energy space. What, what drew you to go back um, a- after being there before? You were at the PSC prior to that. You were at the research center at NDSU. What drew you uh, back to the ERC in this role, and which I think you're perfect for? But what drew you drew you back? Sure, Mike. Um, you know, if you don't mind, maybe I'll. You know, I don't, I don't want to go back to when I was born, but if you don't mind going back a little bit, I think because I always like telling the story about how I ended up where I ended up at, and it. You know, you talked about my time in the Marine Corps, right? And it was I was in Desert Storm, and I remember waking up, uh, head guard duty. Woke up, you know, at the end of my shift and I'm like, you know, ready to, you know, get up and it's still dark out. And I'm like, well, shoot, I must need some more sleep then. So I, you know, fell back asleep because usually you wake up and I had late duty that night. And I woke up again and it was still dark out. And I'm like, okay, something's wrong here, right? So I stumbled out of the back of the Humvee and that's when Hussein lit the oil fields on fire. So oh. I was, you know, I'm in the middle of all that stuff. And I remember going, thinking to myself, this is really screwed up, man. We better be here for more than just energy. The U.S. needs energy security. And I was a 25-year-old sergeant. And and energy security, energy independence was the first real awakening I had to that. And I was in Iraq 
later than as a major towards the last time I was there. And one of our first objectives was one of the oil fields to secure. And I almost became mad. I was like, you know, it is about energy. Why in the hell are we fighting wars in the Middle East? when We should be developing our energy at home. And that was kind of the, I finished out my Marine career. Uh, I worked at North Dakota State, finished the, the doctorate, but then had the calling to run for public service commission. And, you know, and it was about energy, whether it was coal or wind or natural gas or oil. And then I'd been in the PSC for eight years, and I really kind of felt that I wanted to do something a little more challenging. And that's when there was the initial opening at the ERC as one of the directors. Uh, came up here and worked very hard for those two years, working in, in oil and coal and, you know, a lot of wind stuff then, energy storage, CO2, sequestration, pipeline safety. And then the opportunity came to go to NDSU Tech Park to run that, you know, my where I came from, right? And I really enjoyed my three years down there working with startups. But the answer to your question is, I'm an energy guy, right? I Working at NDSU was great, but we did not have the energy focus that that's who I am. And so the chance for one of the VPs came open back here, I jumped at it because my passion since I was, you know, 20 some years old was more energy for the U.S. at home, more energy for North Dakota is good for all of us. And I'm tired of seeing our troops overseas. Just think where we'd be at right now in the world situation if we did not have our own domestic energy supply. So kind of a a long answer, but I mean, that's the passion that I bring to this because it's important. And that's where that's why I want to finish out my career right here and keep doing it. And it's uh, the ERC, you keyed it up. I mean, ERC has been doing work for a long time, you know, 70 plus years. And we have really, really good people that are experts in a lot of fields. And so it's so fun to work with people that are as passionate about whatever their specialty is. And I help orchestrate some of the projects and put the put the puzzle together. But it's really the people we have up here that that paired with industry really make this place so special. Before I dig into the ERC a little bit, um, the the point that you just made with regards to energy independence and energy security, the the whole world has somewhat a vested interest in that because most commerce everywhere is dependent on some form of energy to drive their their machine, right? So when you have more control over your own, you're you're always better off. But that, of course, gives rise to all sorts of conversations about how to do it well, and that's kind of what we're going to talk about. It's interesting to me that EERC which was federalized at one time, started in 51, the same time that oil really was discovered in the state. It was principally driven by lignite coal, which had been discovered back in like 1870, 1873, something something in that area. We had 70 plus mines back in the day, now about five. But EERC's existence is because of coal, it still has a role in it because coal is still with us, but it has expanded into so many critically important project-related areas when it comes to maybe the one of the hottest topics of the day, and that's the transition. How does that look? How does that feel from fossil fuels still using them to get to renewables? Before I ask you a specific EERC question, because th- this is important for me to help uh, understand, when you were at the statutory authority, the PSC, for the eight years, and thanks for serving us for those wonderful eight years, one of your uh, portfolios, if that's the right way to describe it, was e- energy transmission and electric generation. Right. Did when you were there at that time, did you foresee where we're going today with regards to a pretty aggressive ramp up for uh, electrified transportation? Uh, I'm not saying that's a good or bad thing. I'm just saying, did you foresee back then that we'd be at this point getting so ramped up for electrified transportation in our country? You know, I, I would say the answer would be no. Um, 
because, you know, at my time there, I was very fortunate. I, when I started at the PSC, I worked with, you know, then Commissioner Kramer, now Senator Kramer. And, you know, then it was Commissioner Tony Clark. Who, Tony went on to be a FERC commissioner, right? So pretty good crowd. But I remember that, you know, when I got to the commission, there basically was about zero megawatts of wind in North Dakota. There was one small wind farm in, uh, in the rugby area. When I left the commission, there was almost 2,000 megawatts of wind. And we talked a long time about understanding the true impacts of adding renewables to the power grid and what it meant for land use for wind. And we really started seeing so many things he hadn't thought about, impact to aerial spraying, impact to this and that. But we, we, we spent a lot of our time talking about how you could pair renewables with something else. And that's where, like, we did talk a little bit about electrical vehicles, but not the way it is now. And I think that our, or my skepticism at that point in time was that we tend sometimes to just jump into something in the energy world because it seems sexy, but we don't understand the true impact still down the road. And like right now, I know that the, uh, you know, wind didn't have the same rules as coal did as far as decommissioning in the beginning. That legislature is, 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 is we'd say we'd fix that. When we start talking about electrifying the grid for vehicles, I think there's a whole lot of work to be done and understanding. And I'm one that believes you'll never transition to renewables. You just can't do it without fossil fuels. Now, there's a place for renewables, and the ERC is working in a lot of those areas. But let's face it, our energy demands as a, as a society will not go down. They're going to keep going up and up and up and up. So unless you consider more nuclear power, which I don't know where the public's at on that these days, you're going to need coal and oil and natural gas forever. Yeah. The, um, I, I've had a number of conversations with people that are leading projects now that are clean, green, renewable. And part of the component that makes it work is access to fossil fuels. They need them to make their project work. So you, you, you can't... You can't throw the, the baby in the bathwater out of the window at the same time because, you, uh, as folks say, you're going to, we're, we're a carbon-based uh, economy, world really. Fossil fuels are really part of that. And now it's a function of how do you, how do you, make, how, how do you mix and blend and make it work and yeah. have it as effective as possible. You know, Mike, and let me caveat a little bit, too, that I don't mean to say that I'm against electric vehicles, right? right. I just think that there's a place for it. We're, you and I are talking off air that you know, I've got a daughter that lives in Southern California now. And Southern California, the Los Angeles area, is a non-attainment basement for air quality. It just is. There's too many tailpipes and too small of area. So if you have electric vehicles in, in L.A. area and you acknowledge the fact that it's going to be fossil fuels somewhere else that's generating those electrons and you charge your vehicles at night and you can have better air quality by using electric vehicles, what the heck? I, I think that's great. But don't think we're going to transition to a completely electric fleet and don't try to make society do that. <laughs> I mean, but there's a place for, I think, every type. Hydrogen vehicles, okay, I'm, I'm cool with that. But let's look at an all of the above that really means all of the above. And that's where, you know, back to the importance of research with companies. That's the secret sauce of the ERC, having our technical expertise with a company that has some areas where they could use some expertise, pair that up and then develop a research project that then can become commercialized. I mean, you, you brought up the lignite days. The ERC was instrumental in uh, cleaning up mercury out of lignite instrumental. There's patents that came out of this place that were able to get the mercury out of the emissions, which made it better. And so understanding how, you know, different things uh, exist and we can take certain impurities out, long history of those kind of things. And so these these challenges are not going away. And that's where I see a lot of runway for the ERC to help solve some of these critical problems. Oh, I, I agree with you. Let's, let's switch to talk about kind of the structure of EERC, because it I mentioned earlier as we were visiting that it's like a national research energy lab, but not because yeah. it doesn't receive, it's, it's not in the federal budget. You really work at forming relationships and partnerships in large part in the private sector who will provide funding for 
projects that your staff of almost 300 work on, on your 15 acres and 270,000 square feet facility, which is really impressive, by the way, and very little government money. You, you raise money for projects with, am I saying that pretty correctly, with, with private sector No, partners? I think it's very correct, but I, I don't want to say the word very little government money because it's an interesting scenario that happens sometimes where we have North Dakota's very, very forward thinking, right? So we've got the Lignite Research Council, Oil and Gas Research Council, the Renewable Council, and now we have the Clean Sustainable Energy Authority. So kind of our secret, it's not a secret, kind of our mix is company X uh, wants to figure out a way to do something, right, with oil and gas, let's say. Well, for example, the, the, the you know, using CO2 to, for enhanced oil recovery. Let's take that example, right? So oil company X wants to research how to use CO2 to get more oil out of the ground. So we'll take that proposal submitted to the Oil and Gas Research Council, and then there's a match where the company provides let's say 50% match and the oil and gas research council provides 50% match. And then that puts the money together for the project. And so it's to say we don't use state or federal money that that wouldn't be accurate, but okay. the way we pair it together, but the benefit for the company is they get to use those results. The benefit for the state is that becomes then public information at a certain point in time. So it's not like we're taking state money just to benefit one company. There's a first mover usually or, or a conglomeration, but at the end of the day, the state is advancing the ball on, on, using, on using that data. So we try to pair sources of funding when appropriate. Um, and there will be once in a while be a directed study from the legislature wanting us to do something that happens very seldom. But most of our contracts are purely commercial contracts to, to kind of to set the stage, I guess. When the uh, governor, when Governor Burgum put that stake in the ground, carbon neutral by uh, 2030, which is bold, aggressive, and appropriate, frankly, what what does that do internally at EERC with regards to project portfolio, and then how you might look at future opportunities and how that complements what the state is trying to do? Sure. It's funny that when the governor made that statement, uh, one of the guys I work with, that uh, he's a CO2 sequestration expert. That's maybe not the technical term, right? But um, his name is Jim, actually. And Jim said, well, we're going to get a lot busier because, <laughs> I mean, he was right, right? The EERC has been working on uh, CO2 sequestration for decades, literally, back to the plain CO2 reduction projects. And so, our expertise then became a lot more valuable to a lot of people. And so we have gotten gotten busier on some of that. And I, I think what it does is, so I, I don't think it was a big, like for most of the people here where they're like, you know, we're, most of the crew here are scientists, right? So they don't get real excited one way or the other. They love the fact that you can store CO2 in the ground and they try to figure out, does it store better in this formation or that formation or where can you put it better in the Bakken profile? So they tend to not worry as much what policymakers say, frankly. They're really focused about their research. And that's where, you know, my job and you know, John Haru, Charlie Gorecki are where we're the ones, I think, that try to really interface the policy side to what our expertise is. Because, like I said, it's kind of apples and oranges, which is good. That's why I have a job, right? <laughs> yep. The You mentioned the Clean Energy Authority. Is it clean Sustainable Energy is a Clean Energy Authority. It's uh, the abbreviation is letter C, number, letter C, letter S, letter E, letter A, Clean Sustainable Energy Authority. And Thank you very much. The, uh, the abbreviation, abbreviation that threw me off is the abbreviation is CC. And I'm thinking like letter C, letter C, but no, it's letter C and then SEA. So I had to have somebody spell it to me phonetically at first. I'm like, oh, okay, I got that. Charlie Clean Sierra. Sustainable you know. Energy Authority. And and I, I, I thank the legislature for the, their forward thinking, by the way, because I, I, I thought that was a, a brilliant move, timely, uh, very important. And I looked at the list of projects that were funded. Obviously, not all were. I saw a clear connection between what some of them are doing, maybe all of them, 
and uh, their relationship or likely relationship with EERC, I just thought it was beautiful. This is this is a, a great example of a form of legislation that isn't in the business of restricting you. It's enabling you to do something in your space to make a better environment for all of us. And and I hope well, that, I hope they do it again. Go ahead. One thing, Mike, that you know, I was. I would say relatively new to research when I came to the ERC the last time, right? But it, it doesn't take long to develop an appreciation for two things that in the energy world, nothing happens quick, right? Because it just takes so long to build some of this infrastructure, right? And so, so the, there's, there's a long, it's not like developing a software app where you can put it together. It takes some time, right? And then the other side of the coin is that the um, basically, when you do things, you're going to have a whole bunch of research projects and then it narrows down pretty quick to those that actually work. And of those that are work, who has the appetite to invest in them so they actually come to it? So some of these research funds in North Dakota, they help take the concept to, to advance it. And at some point, then hopefully it'll, it'll commercialize. But you're going to have a lot more fail than you do um, make it. And that's one of the things of just research. And so if you've got a big company, I'll pick on a company like Exxon, right? They've got a major R&D development. And we don't do a lot of work with those kind of companies just because they've got their own internal R&D. Where most North Dakota companies don't have their own internal research and development, but they have an appetite to solve problems. And so that's the backdrop of company money, state money, researching a North Dakota problem that will benefit our companies. And then that's how we put it together. But so when you look at the companies that we partner with, um, they're not, you know, they're big companies. Don't get me wrong, but they're not, you know, gargantuan companies with their own internal research and development. And, and when we brief it out, we're solving North Dakota problems as well, not just company problems. Right. In, in your role as Assistant Vice President for Strategic Partnerships, I, I'm going to assume just because of the title that you spend a fair amount of your time building relationships with uh, uh, people that could benefit from what the EERC is capable of doing or um, uh, people that could benefit from things that are happening in the state and what EERC is doing. So, What's your average day like when it comes to, and you're so good at building relationships, what's it like in terms of building relationships, Brian? Sure. The, uh, and I think that kind of goes for most of the leadership team, so it's not unique to me, right? The, uh, you know, I think you kind of have your day in the office and your day out of the office was the old days. Well, now with the Zoom world, we can be in Western North Dakota and jump on a quick staff meeting back here. So I would say it's changed, but for the better. Because now with the ability to do like you and I are doing, you don't lose the time which normally you'd lose before because of travel, right? You can jump on meetings at eight o'clock in the morning. But I would say that, you know, a typical day is we always, or I always try to touch base with some of the key researchers almost every day, right? To see if they're hearing something. So what I try to do is to listen to people, right? So we've got um, probably a half dozen directors that, you know, one's subsurface, one's capture, one's this, one's that. So I'm talking to them. Hey, Jason, you hear anything today? You got any things you'd like me to follow up on? Nope. Yep. They'll have something. So you check in kind of with your own internal staff. And then basically, depending where we're at, like, you know, we'll be at the Lignite annual meeting here shortly. And so we'll talk to the the Lignite staff. We're going to be at the North Dakota Petroleum Council meeting here shortly. So a lot of times between that relationship between our technical staff and the companies that are doing work, just listening to what their problems are or what the opportunities might be and then trying to blend it. Hmm. I won't go into too many, I don't know, project specifics, but one I'm really curious about, and, you know, the, the, the what EERC works on is pretty broad. It, it, it's a pretty expansive uh, menu, if you will. But the, the hydrogen and fuel cell research that takes place, and has been for quite some time, by the way, I've always been interested in that because somewhere along the line, and it may have been when I did Energy uh, Energy Matters, the show right from EERC back in, 
probably 2015, 2014, somewhere in there. Sure. Maybe, maybe even before. I've, Based on what I read, there's the potential for hydrogen vehicles versus electrified is fairly near into the future and that it in some ways is a far better energy source for for a vehicle than electric electrification where is erc in that that whole study process when it comes to hydrogen and fuel cells yeah great question the uh you know kind of stepping back to what you said yeah the the ERC did work on hydrogen fuel cells, you know, like you said, a decade ago and even before then. Actually, we have a designation as the, the National Hydrogen Research Center is one of our designations of our, of our building, our Fuel of the Future building. And so back in the day, we had hydrogen powered, um, it was a hydrogen powered Zamboni we had up here. That was before I got up here. And then there's been some work with the hydrogen tractors. And so the nice thing about hydrogen is you can store it where it's really hard for electrons to be stored, batteries, but you know that's, that's still working. So I would say to answer your, or to try to best answer your question about where we're at, um, we've got uh, Chad Wilkins' his name. He's, he's leading an effort on hydrogen fuel cells. And basically we've got a suite of fuel cells that we're testing now for some companies, let's say, trying to figure out ways to improve those individual fuel cells. And also what's going to power those fuel cells? Do you, where do you get the hydrogen from? There's many ways to, to get hydrogen, right? It's available in in uh, a lot of emissions, let's say, right? So trying to look at where you get the hydrogen from, what's the best place to put it at, and then if we get it in, you know, because sometimes you get hydrogen out of sources that aren't clean, so then you got to do some cleanup on that. So that goes back to the history of cleaning up coal emissions. We've got some people that are pretty good at that, so they're looking at some of it. And so where we're at, I think we're trying to continually move the needle and we're trying to find companies that are willing to take this to the next level to commercialize, to start putting some of these in vehicles. And, and some of that's going on right now. Um, we're also looking at trying to get into some uh, DOD work because who better than the Defense Department to use uh, fuel cells? So I think that's probably about the best I want to throw out there, but we're you know, we always too we sign non-disclosures with companies too. If if sure. we're using state money, um, then that's a different set of rules. But in some of these pure commercial areas, um, it's strictly let's just say we're working with several commercial companies in this area. Sure. Yeah, and and you don't have to respond to this, but in the the reading that I do, not just for prepping for the show, but just the stuff I've done because it's of interest to me. I've read where. Uh, rail companies uh, are, are looking very aggressively at transitioning already to hydrogen fuel cells for uh, moving the locomotives. Uh, semi uh, transportation is the same, and then big fa- farm implements, which all make sense, by the way, because of the nature of, of their business. The the next th- question I'm curious about the ability. To for for CO two sequestration, carbon neutral, and the the project types that are looking at North Dakota right now, we're almost the perfect place for the ability to store because of what we have underground. Kind of walk us through why sure. we're almost the perfect petri dish for that, Brian. Yeah, the uh, um, well, you know. The geology of North Dakota, and remember, I'm not a geologist here, right? But it, it, it is very good for for storing CO2. We've got the right type of geology and, and, and that, that it works. And that, we're not the only ones that have that, like Louisiana, the Gulf Coast. There are some states down there that have some, some good storage reservoirs. But one thing that makes North Dakota different is um, our leaders took the initiative to um, basically set up rules for poor space storage in North Dakota. And so I don't know if it was Governor Dalrymple or Governor Hoven that it started under, um, but basically thanks to the work of the governor's office and our legislators, North Dakota became the first state to get permits issued by the state, approved by the federal government to store CO2. So even though there are other states out there that have potentially storage areas, we were the first state to get this pore space ruling uh, taken care of so we can actually have permits in place to store the CO2. Now, my understanding is that 
Other states are moving on this as well, but we're basically quite a bit ahead of the game. And then, you know, we've been sending CO2 out of North Dakota to Canada for years on that one pipeline. Um, and they've been using it up there for, I think, oil recovery. So there's been a long history of it. But I think basically the the combination of uh, the, 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 the science of the ability to store it and the ERC back to the to our team here had been working with plain CO2 PCOR, plain CO2 reduction project for decades, and had spent time investing in these different s- structures, and then then took it in the lab. That okay, this should work. This works in the lab. Let's try it in the field. And they developed data in the field, which turned into Red Trail Energy is probably the the flagship on what's going on in CO2 storage in the state. But it didn't happen overnight. I mean, this is 30 right. years of work that, yep. you know, all of a sudden it's, it's like starting a business. You don't all of a sudden have a success. You start a long time back. And that kind of goes to what I was saying before is you got a lot of projects that turn down and maybe one or two big successes. You know, just to validate what you're saying, um, a person that, that I know is the CEO of a engineering firm based outside of the States. And he was home. He still has a home and family in, in the States. He travels back and forth. And he happened to listen to one of my podcasts where I had James Lamont, former Commerce Commissioner. Sure. And James was talking, James was talking about some of the things you just addressed and the forward thinking leadership in the state and where we are with that. How do how do we take fossil fuels and start to transition to renewables? Well, one of the r- roles that this fellow has is how to expand this European company into North America, specifically the States. He calls me because he had listened to this and he had been looking at Texas as maybe that's the place where their company should expand. But he's, this gave him, when he heard James, it gave him pause to say, maybe North Dakota is really the place that we should be doing this. They seem to be a little bit more advanced in the in the areas that that we want to go, so I'm I'm going to get to my next question by using that to tee it up. When there are significant policy leadership changes, like the carbon neutral in 2020, 2030, excuse me, that that's a local statewide one or uh, on a national level. How, how does that impact the types of strategic discussions? If you can reveal some of that that you have internally about how you tweak, how you use that, how you modify what EERC is doing and moving forward? Sure. It's a, it's a great question. And the, uh, you know, I, I think I'll go back to the basics of EERC typically will, will be a partner on a research effort with a company. So, so part of it is, you know, we very seldom, um, we'll just say we're going to research something for the sake of research. It's paired up with a company. So as companies turn like a big ship, we we end up pivoting with them in some of this, right? And so I think when you look at that, um, it 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 we have a we try to have people that that can take their expertise and put it in different areas, right? If you're really good at figuring out how to move CO two through a pipeline. You're probably pretty good at figuring out how to move hydrogen through a pipeline. And if you're pretty good at that, you're probably pretty good at figuring out how you move move liquids through something else. We try to get good good people that you can adapt to a lot of different problems. But I really go back to it's really the companies that will drive our research efforts. Now, just recently, this last session, um, uh, the state of North Dakota designated uh, the ERC, the State Energy Research Center, and so we now have just started several weeks. There's something called technology readiness levels, TRLs, they're called, and they go all the way from zero to nine. And if you figure from zero, I'm not even sure zero is one, I guess zero, I know for sure one is, from one till nine, but basically you go TRL level one to three, it's just, there's nothing there, right? And you go four to six, it's getting closer to commercially ready. And if you go six, seven, eight, they're commercially ready, right? So a lot of the work that we do is in that middle area, right? We, we did very, very little low-level research for years because that's not where companies live. But the last session, uh, Tom Erickson, Charlie Grecki, um, and actually the state kind of pushed it. Senator Wardner was, was instrumental as majority leader. 
and uh, Representative Pollard as well, that they wanted the ability to take some scientists to go back to fundamental research and spend some time into it that then grows into something bigger. And so I'll give you an example of what happened is the the state designated some of that money to to us to do that basic fundamental research. And we've got a fellow named... Alex Alex Azenkink, um, and he had an idea of how to take lignite coal and basically make carbon fibers out of it. But nobody would be willing to fund that research because it's a long way from development, right? But you can see there'd be a huge benefit to North Dakota. Well, Alex has now figured this out, right? He basically has figured out a way that he can take North Dakota lignite through a process and make carbon fibers out of it. And now we're trying to figure out, he can do it in the lab and he can create these little teeny carbon fibers. And we're trying to figure out, okay, where, where do you go with this? And, you know, my thing is defense, right? If you can make a, something lighter, stronger, more affordable. And so that's something that if it wasn't for the fundamental research, uh, we wouldn't have developed that. And now Alex has some patents on that. The EERC has some shared patents on that. And now we're going to try to see if we can find some commercialization we're still a long ways away from this, Mike, but um, if you ever want to talk to Alex, oh boy, he'd talk your ear off. But what he's done is actually, it's uh, its perhaps one of the biggest things the ERC has done uh, since back when they solved some of the mercury problems. And people are really excited about that. He's actually got a paper he's going to be publishing on that here shortly. So its uh, that's a good example of something where you, what's the problem we're trying to solve? North Dakota lignite. Okay. How do we do more than than power with lignite? So we developed. Alex has got this problem, this work the issue now. Of he's making able to make carbon fiber, um, and now we need to scale. We also have the North Dakota. Um, this has gone through the lignite council, so it's a little bit farther research. Rare earth elements out of North Dakota lignite, and so there's actually going to be a conference in Bismarck, October 11th. I don't know when this airs, but we'd love to have you come by. But we're talking about North Dakota lignite has all rare earth and critical elements are in North Dakota lignite somewhere. And we're trying to figure out ways to extract it. And the nice thing, extract it um, more environmentally friendly where I'm going. Because you can extract it now, but it's a pretty labor intensive process. And so it, it, it exists in the ash of coal. So it doesn't necessarily, so if we could take out coal ash and get out of it, fly ash. So I'm, I'm getting kind of cited here, but you see what this is what we're talking about, right? Oh, yeah. You got Coal, coal, you know, how can you make more value out of North Dakota lignite? That's the challenge. Get our researchers spinning on it, and all of a sudden we got two new industries in the state. So it's uh, October 11th. I'll be there. That's Empower, right? Well, no, the Empower is October 10th, 10th on that Monday. But our our conference is the next day, same place at Bismarck State College, October 11th, where we're just going to be talking about rare and critical elements. Okay. It's uh, it's so that's where we're trying to get the word out in that too. But it's uh, I think we might be doing a section on empower, but that's an example I think of the best for your audience of something where we have lots of ex- expertise in lignite coal, right? right? And then somebody says, well, can you do this? You got Alex on this, and he's just ready to run, right? And we have some other researchers that are able to figure out extraction techniques out of the coal, and. You know, they're not worried so much about the business side. That's somebody else's job. That's mine and other guys' job. They're worried about figuring out how to do it. And then how do we do it to scale? And then think about that. If we can develop this rare earth elements out of North Dakota lignite, we don't have to worry about China for getting these rare earth elements, which are in jets and which are in our computers and everything else. And think about if you can if you can make better body armor or better, you know, uh, Kevlar or something out of North Dakota lignite, wouldn't that be great? for everybody. Oh, yeah. Does EERC work, um, if you can reveal this, does it work in in the research area working with graphene and how that has the ability to rapidly uh, increase the ability of, you know, for example, if I want to charge my Apple Watch, it might take an hour or whatever it was, but with graphene, what I've read, it might take five, 10 seconds. Uh, my my i um, my iPad. It might take seconds instead of taking, you know, a couple of hours to charge your car. It may take five ten minutes. That graphene, for some reason, has some type of capability to change uh, electrific- electrification. Do, is EERC working on something along those lines? Alex is working on that too, <laughs> and uh, yeah, he that he's he, 
he told me something. I, I he said that with the how the heck did he say it with a, a thread of graphene like like a fishing line you could lift a piano with it. And I was like, come on. And he's like, no, if you do it right, it's that strong and it's highly conductive. So um, yes, is the answer to your question. And you know what I'll do, Mike, is I'll get I'll get Alex to call you or email you or something because he just loves talking about it and and he's very good at it too. And and since this was funded with um, state dollars and it's, 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 it's public information except for his patents. But I mean, we're, we're very excited to talk about those kind of things. Oh, I'd love to have him on. Thanks. It just, uh, cause that, that, you know, the future is exciting. And when people are working on really neat things that are going to make your life, uh, easier, better, that, 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 that's just great to know. You are on the empower schedule, if I'm not mistaken, right? Well, I told, yeah, I, I haven't seen the final schedule, but they asked us, wanted us to present a panel on uh, uh, on rare earth elements and sequestration. So I haven't talked to them lately, but I hope we are. They said we were. So well, I went to the website. I saw your name. So okay, I'll have to go look at that. I haven't looked at that lately. Thank and maybe you, I'm gonna have to stay over now to take advantage of the next day as well. Well, um, but you live in? Oh, yeah, that's right. You're in Fargo now. That's right, the big city. Yeah, yeah. So it's a it's a three hour drive. And if it was, if I had the access to autonomous transportation, I could have a real productive three hours. I'm an autonomous transportation guy. When I'm, I'm so forward- sold, if I could get in the car and let somebody else drive it, I'm there, man. <laughs> I, I, I get it. So, t- tell us a little bit about the facility foot footprint for ERC. It is really impressive. But when I had the chance to walk through, I was like a you know kid in a candy store. I thought it was pretty cool. Well, no, it's it's funny. The uh, you have you have to have good people, right? There's no question about it. But you also have to have good equipment and, and access to equipment. So you know, for seventy plus years, there's been equipment that has been purchased for certain research experiments or certain commercializations. That we've got a whole suite of equipment that deals with lignite coal, how to gasify it, how to clean it up, how to do all these things, and so. And also there's new equipment that's out there. So we have a long relationship with equipment vendors and sometimes they'll want us to try equipment for them. But we've got a lot of good equipment out in our basically, you know, some of our high base systems where you can do a lot of real, real world work. And we've got 12 labs in the building, you know, dealing all the way from water to rare elements to, to basically the whole, uh, we've got the, um, oh shoot, I'm drawing a blank on it. Uh, our core lab downstairs where we basically have corings done of well sites over the years that we have a, literally a, a picture and physically of those borings that our scientists can do the work in each of those different formations to see how they react. And so you've got just a lot of capability here of, of good people and good facilities that when we get these opportunities, we can put it together. And then we do have, we also have a very good, um, which goes maybe un, unnoticed sometimes, or not, I shouldn't say I noticed, we don't think about it, but we've got a very good graphics department up here. You've got very good researchers, but someone's got to tell the story. And researchers, they're not really good at putting together PowerPoints and those things. We've got a graphics section that will say, hey, I'd like a picture of, and then they can develop it and put it in a PowerPoint or something. So, and we've got a lot of good people that are very good writers up here. So it's, it's really the whole team concept of, you have to have the equipment, you have people that can operate the equipment, have to people that can tell the story and you have to be able to basically manage people too. So, you know, with, with like everything you got, you always got a couple of bad apples you got to worry with too. Right. But for the most part, we find really good people and the hiring challenges that, that are in North Dakota are real. Right. But one thing I was talking earlier in the show about the virtual workforce, we've got, I think at least 50 workers that are virtual hundred percent of the time that we hire during the virus and and they it's working out really well right now so we're able to overcome a lot of that with the technology and we do have they come back once in a while here but uh you know if you're a statistician you know trying to you got somebody who puts all these numbers together somebody's got to put a graph together and we've got some statisticians that are working in wisconsin that we send them the data they put it all together so we're making that work and that charlie is our ceo Gorecki. he's been very instrumental and hey we're going to tweak this and we're going to stick with it. And it, it makes it easier to hire people, frankly, if they they can do the work where they're at and it's working. Brian, I'm going to ask you a question about the, what I would call 
and probably for political purposes, the um, the gross exaggeration about the fossil fuel industry, whether it's um, gas, oil, exploration, production companies, uh, coal, you, you name it. You had eight years working as a public service commissioner and were exposed. And by the way, that doesn't mean there aren't bad players in everything nowadays, right? Absolutely. But my experience has been that most people are not. So you had eight years of uh, being in that statutory authority, pu public service commissioner. You've been at EERC, at the tech park down at NDSU, back up at EERC. You've, you've been uh, rubbing shoulders and, and working with people in some form of the en energy business for, for some time. Would you say that most of them uh, are trying to do the best they can to protect the environment in, 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 with regards to the work that they do? Oh, I think the answer is absolutely yes. I mean, I'll, I'll pick on a, a company like Hess, right? Hess has been in North Dakota a long time. They care about North Dakota. They care about Minot. They care about the whole state. I mean, these are really good people, right? And you know, it's funny. We started a program the last time I was here called iPipe to improve pipeline safety. And Hess was the anchor tenant. They're like, yep, we want to do it. And I think what's so interesting is whenever there's a, 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 a some type of a pipeline leak, right, the companies don't want a leak product either. And mm -hmm. what gets frustrating is, you know, the biggest reason, as an example, pipelines fail is third-party damage. Somebody puts a backhoe through a pipeline, but then the company gets the black eye. But, I mean, that's where I think the, the point about people that don't like fossil fuels will just over-exaggerate. And it gets very frustrating, but I think you just have to try to stay your course. But I'll tell you that the only exception I, I, that I've seen in my time, I guess, is that early on in the beginning of our energy boom, when we really, it just started going like this, right? The big companies in North Dakota, they, they never wavered. You know, the Hesses of the world were doing things right. The Oasis is doing things. I mean, take your pick. They, you know, they, they were all doing what was right. But we did notice at the PSC that there was some sub of a sub of a sub. So you got a big company that's trying to get some pipelines built. And the way down the food chain to hire a subcontractor that they came in and maybe tried to do things that maybe they cut a couple corners. So, but that quickly got, that North Dakota is so small, that quickly gets out. But I would say that my experiences with the companies has always been very good. Yeah. And we held them accountable as appropriate too. If there was need be, we never had any challenges. If somebody does something wrong, then they're held accountable. We didn't have problems with that, but they know it too. Yeah. I mean, I'm going to echo that. I was... Uh, blessed to be asked by Governor Dalrymple at the, at the time to be on the uh, Pipeline Safety Commission. Oh, sure. And many of the, I, I, I don't think you were on it. I got to think, no, you weren't. But a lot of the pipeline executives or their right-hand person were, were on that. And this yep. was at a time where there was, a real elevated attention for whatever reason at, at, at pipelines. And to a person, these people were emotional about what they do for a living. It was in their own backyard. What, what, this is where we live. This is where we play. This is where our kids are. This is, this, we, we love this place. So I was, always, I was always kind of just irritated that people would greatly exaggerate, surprise, surprise, um, uh, the, the, the efforts of, of others. The, um, the, the, the carbon capture, I can't, I can't get off of this, uh, goal by the governor of 2030. As you had mentioned, EERC has been working on sequestration for decades. Was a lot of that driven by the partners? So not so much the EERC, but the partners that you had from the private sector wanting to make improvements in how they utilize uh, the land and what they do for a living? Oh, absolutely. The uh, Now, I was not around for the initial work, right? Uh, but I'll tell you that in the time that I've been around, it, the oil companies want to figure out how to get more oil out of the ground. And 
Things like ethane help a little bit, but CO2 could be the secret sauce that we figure out how to use CO2 down the well, you can get more oil out of the ground. And so um, there's a lot of companies that have spent a lot of time and effort to how to do that. And so I would say that the answer to your question is it's the companies that are driving that right now. Now, now you know, it's kind of chicken and the egg a little bit too, right? The companies also probably see federal legislation or federal this dialogue on it. But at the end of the day, my experience with companies is that they want to comply with the laws. That's not the question. But they want to figure out how to do something more efficiently or basically, you know, how to get more, 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 more product out. Yeah. I mean, and there, there's lots of that that goes on right now. This might be a dumb question. Do you, um, to your knowledge, does the EERC ever collaborate or partner with any of the national labs, like the Nas National Renewable Energy Lab? Is there ever any cross-pollination there? You know, it's NREL, the, the group out of Denver you're talking about? Yes. Uh, um, I think the answer is yes, right? Uh, and, and EERC will partner with, with other universities. I mean, uh, we've got some projects we're doing with North Dakota State right now. You know, Bismarck State College is the energy center. We'd be happy to work with them. I mean, I talked to President Shirley at Minot State. They've got a geothermal up there. So I would say we'll work with anybody if we if we have an aligned interest, right? And so um, so the answer to the question is yes. But I'll tell you that it's it's not the norm for the other national labs because the national labs still get direct appropriations to them. And frankly, they don't really want to share the other way. And maybe we don't want to get too close to them because a lot of our companies, they like to keep things in North Dakota. I mean, it's it's easy. It's just back to the, we were saying, it's just easier to operate in our state than getting some of the other people into some of the, the mix. Yeah. I'm going to ask you a magic wand question. Sure. And again, thank you so much for joining me, Brian. This has been very informative and educational for me. If you could wave a magic wand over the heads of any person that has what I would call uh, a less than favorable uh, opinion of the industry that, that we'll call it the, the fossil fuels, people that are in coal, oil, gas, you name it. What's the one thing you'd want them to know about the types of research that are being done at EERC to um, that, that would be a benefit to all consumers? What, what, what's the one thing you'd want them to know? Sure. Um yeah, pretty broad question, but I, I get what you're saying. I think that, you know, um, you know, I taught at North Dakota State for a while and I've taught other colleges, right? But one of the things that I always try to impress to the students was that there are absolutely pros and cons to every type of energy source. And we need places like the EERC to study and know those pros and cons so you can make informed decisions as what the impact is going to be. So if I could do the magic wand is that, the research that we've got published on basically almost every type of industry, the people understood what the really true pros and cons are. I, I go down to the blackboard and I start out with nuclear pros, zero two, you know, zero CO2 emissions, cons, nuclear waste. I mean, coal, you can do the same thing. Wind, I mean, you can, you can literally, solar, how do you get rid of the batteries? I mean, so I think understanding that the pros and cons of everything, and so you can make informed decisions and then realizing that our energy needs will not be going down. And the other side of the coin is we've got to be good stewards of, of the earth. I mean, there's only, think about this. When you and I were born, there was maybe, what, 2 billion people on earth, maybe? And now we're, what, are we approaching 10? So, you know, this this is always called, my, my wife laughs, the inner hippie comes out of me sometimes too, right? Where, you know, we got to do a better job of managing our resources because we are putting more and more strain on everything. And so we, we just have to figure out that balance, whether it's food or energy, because there's only so much of it around there. And we talk about the marine time, and I was fortunate to be in, you know, over 40 different countries, and there's nowhere anywhere even close to as good as the U.S. And you talk about, you know, why we got problems in the world is because of energy imbalances and food imbalances. So 
I could go on there again too, but back to what got me into this job. Yeah. I'm going to go back to, uh, by the way, the website is undeerc.org. Absolutely. That's a good place for people to go and learn more about the wonderful work that ERC does. I want to go back to your time on the Public Service Commission, specifically with regards to your portfolio of electric generation and transmission. You know, given the the significant push to really ramp up electri- electrified transportation, which, by the way, I, I'm a fan of. I have been in a number of electric cars, and I think they're pretty darn cool, to be honest with you. The uh, is the, you know the the grid is made up of about four thousand different participants. It's not owned by the it's not owned really by anybody, and it's kind of hard to control it. Um, is it the it, it, does the potential exist as we try to aggressively uh, insert different types of users of the current grid, understanding that the, that the power of the electricity has to come from somewhere. Most of it's going to come currently from fossil fuel sources. Can it handle uh, a rapid introduction of new users? You know, you if you Julie Fedorchek, the chair of the commission. I know you know Julie. Yeah. Julie's got a very good presentation on this, and she has some concerns about where we're going with this. And but but I to your point, the the, the power grid is a very complex thing, but it's also very fragile, and we've got some significant congestion on the lines right now, and so the current power grid can't even become close to what could happen with electrical vehicles, and. What I think is most challenging about the power grid and pipeline industries is that people don't want power lines in their backyard, but we're going to need more power lines if we're going to have more users. In you know, and so how do you find that balance? And then everybody always thinks it's for free. When you build a power line, you're paying for it. You and I pay for it because we we all get power from MDU or Excel or Otter Tail or the co-ops. And so when you build these power lines. So we have a case, we've got aging power lines that need to be replaced. We have to add power lines to, to move energy. And so it's, uh, you know, let's go back to that. We better understand what the heck we're doing before we're doing it. And, and I think that the distributed generation is something that people talk a lot about where, you know, you have, but then you go back to each state is different. North Dakota is blessed with all types of energy sources. Most states don't have that, right? And so back to the nuclear discussion, you know, California had some nuke plants, they shut down. Well, you see what's happening now. I mean, it's just very complex. But the answer to your question is, I think I, I, I'm, I would be very skeptical about the current grid supporting that kind of work. And we, we got to continue to work the, the, the issues, but it doesn't happen overnight. Well, you just said something that raised the hair on the back of my neck because I have zero hair on my head. <laughs> when there's going to be, a, we're going to need more transmission lines and nobody wants a transmission line in their backyard, that right there is going to be maybe the greatest challenge to. Well, absolutely. The Northeast states, they, they say, we don't want this, we don't want that, we only want natural gas. Okay, fine. Well, nobody wants a natural gas pipeline across <laughs> there. So now these states up there, they're, you know, it's just bizarre. And that's back to the truly understand the pros and cons of everything. And oh, there's only, look, I think it's just, yeah, get me going, Mike. But <laughs> I, I just, I don't understand how people can think that the electric car, where does the power come from? It's going to come from a coal plant, a wind plant, a nuke plant. I mean, uh, it just, but that's where you just have to stay focused and don't get wound up and just stay in the fight every day. <laughs> you know? Yeah, I have to. I tell you what, though, Mike, I'm very glad that we're having the discussion in the U.S. and the discussion is around what type of energy source we're using, but they're all domestic sources, right? Back to where I started this discussion, right? We're not importing oil because we have to. We're actually, you know, think of the wealth transfer for decades of U.S. money going to the Middle East, right? Now the wealth transfer is the other way where we're exporting natural gas to countries and the wealth transfer. So as long as we're having the debate about what type of U.S. energy sources? Fine. 
I just don't ever want to be where we're not energy independent. Yeah, well, amen. I, I couldn't agree with you more. Well, Brian, this has been delightful. What's the, what's the last thing people should know about you and what you're doing at EERC? Well, I think just the importance of understanding the issues, have fun. And, you know, I've, I've had a lot of jobs in my life. I mean, it's all attitude. You know, if it, you just have a, you know, I always tell people I've won and lost elections. And guess what? The sun came up both days, you know, and <laughs> it's it's all fine. And, and really, as you get older, I think, like we were talking before you, I used to be a young guy and hear old guys. I'm like, man, old guys lost it. But I think you get to a certain point where you just realize that, you just got to find balance in the issues. And I just right now at a point in my career where I really want us to be thinking about the long game, you know, yeah. how we can make sure to pass what we have on. And 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 I think that's what we're doing is we're going to need energy and we're going to need food. And it's all going to in North Dakota, we're, we're positioned to do it all. We are. And we ask because we have great people involved in real important things. And you're one of them, Brian. Hey, thanks so much for joining me today. I learned a lot. Appreciate. I've always appreciated you and Karen and what you're doing. And uh, we're in good hands, Brian Call. Thanks so much for joining me today. Well, thanks for the time and thanks for what you do, Mike. Thank you.